1 Samuel 19. We always ask the Lord's blessing when we open the scriptures. Let's do that together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living word. and We know that it's not um, man's word, but it's the Holy Spirit through men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing down these spiritual life-giving words from heaven. And so, Father, open our hearts to understand, help us, Holy Spirit, to see Christ and to hear the truth and to put it into practice and be blessed. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we've all heard the expression, no good deed goes unpunished. It's that sarcastic proverb that points out that frequently acts of kindness or goodness backfire on those who do them. Now, if David heard someone say, no good deed goes unpunished, I picture him saying, I know, right? A story of my life. Now, the more good David does, the worse it seems to get for him, or so it seems. So here in 1 Samuel 19, uh, the Lord has made it very clear to King Saul that he was to step down, and even he's made it clear to Saul that David would be replacing him, yet Saul uh, clings with a murderous rage to his position as God is raising up David and making David well-known and very successful and well-loved. And it would seem that the more good David does uh, in regards to King Saul himself, the more trouble he's in with King Saul. David defeats Israel's enemies, and, and he gets rid of a giant problem. And he gets rid of a giant problem. <laughs> and David graciously plays music to soothe and to serve Saul in his mental anguish. And he's actually helping this king. Uh, David never slanders him never gossips about him, never insults King Saul, even though King Saul's trying to kill him. He never rebels. He never lifts a finger against him. He respects his position. Now, David's, uh, keep, David is keep doing, David keeps doing good. Now, it's going to be a long night, isn't it? I see it coming. Now, wait, hold on. A little more caffeine. There we go. Here we go. Now, David keeps on doing good, and the King James Version had it really well last chapter. Chapter 18, four times. Verse 5, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 30. Four times it says the same thing last chapter. Uh, He behaved himself wisely. It didn't matter that this was a crazy king in charge of his life, uh, you know, controlling the shots, but David is going to behave wisely. Now, uh, uh, Proverbs, a king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant incurs his wrath. Now, the word wise there is the same root word for David behaving wisely in all his ways. And so under normal circumstances, listen, a king delights in a wise servant. Uh, A sane and reasonable king would delight in David's wise behavior. But in this case, 
However, David's wise behavior was detestable and despised by the king because of his insecure jealousy. So now we pick up the story. David, who is well-loved by all of Israel, he's a war hero now. Uh, He's the king's son-in-law, even. And he's behaving wisely in all his ways. David must now become a fugitive fleeing, running for his life as King Saul seeks to eliminate his up-and-coming rival. So 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1 through 3. Now King Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So uh, our first point this evening will be a true friend. Proverbs 18 and verse 24. There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and that would be Jonathan. And we've met Jonathan and Uh, have seen their friendship together. God gave this gift to David, knowing what David would have to go through. And the Lord saw fit that he wouldn't have to go through this terrible time without somebody, a friend, a heart friend, a loyal friend. And we saw that a couple times ago, that Jonathan really is an unlikely friend. And you'll recall because he is the crown prince. And so he realizes that the Lord is with David and David is truly going to be the next king. Jonathan has already acknowledged that that means his father is no longer going to be king. And it also means that Jonathan himself will not be heir to the throne. But Jonathan is a godly man. He loves the Lord. He's a courageous man. And Jonathan can read the writing on the wall. And he wants God's will to be done. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about selfish ambition. He cares about the kingdom of God and that God's name is honored and God's will is done. He knew that the Lord was with David. And his love for God and God's will was greater than anything he could want for himself. He knew he wasn't going to be king, that this young man was going to be king someday. And he's okay with that. Now, these two guys, David and and Jonathan, are really comrades in arms. They fight in wars together, side by side. and, and, And veterans say that there's nothing that makes a bond like uh like brothers who have to serve in a war, fighting for their lives side by side. And so uh, they have sworn friendship in earlier chapters. Uh, They have made vows to each other, considering their positions in life. And they said, no matter what, nobody's going to get in the way of our special friendship. We'll be loyal to one another until death. And so I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, it's remarkable that such a magnificent son like Jonathan could belong to such a wicked father. Now Saul's uh, hatred in our opening verses has gone viral and has uh, gone public. Now uh, Saul's done, as of verse 1, of playing secret games secretly and subtly trying to do away with King David. Now it's going to be 
for everybody to know about. Uh, you'll remember before it was all smiles in public and, oh, tell, tell David that the, the king is really fond of him and wants him to marry his daughter. And behind closed doors, of course, spears were flying. And uh, he sends David into secret uh, several battles, hoping that David would get killed by the enemy's sword, secretly, you see. And before this time, he tried to double-cross David, you'll remember, promising one of his daughters to David, and then at the very last second, giving her to another man, hoping to stir up a little rebellion, to get him angry enough to do something, so that he has some kind of accusation to, to get rid of David. And then uh, for the second daughter, he asked for a dowry of a hundred dead Philistines, and he comes up with an idea, as we saw last week, to desecrate or mutilate their bodies to make him a marked man, a walking target by the whole army of Philistines. And so those days are over, because it's not working. In fact, the more Saul tries to stop and uh, derail David from his rightful place, the Lord just blesses him. He's, he, he's, he's becoming more famous, more loved, and more honored. And so instead of seeing that as the Lord speaking to Saul's heart, saying, Saul's not working, get with the program, humble yourself, turn this thing around, instead of seeing that, he hardens his heart. And now he, he's going to tell everybody about the intentions of his heart. And so there in verse 1, Saul goes public with his intentions to murder. And it says, the king is commanding his son. And the staff that we have read earlier loves David. So uh, it's only, uh, I like what one writer said, it's only a matter of time before what's nurtured in the secret place of your heart comes out into public domain. It's only a matter of time before what's nurtured in the secret place of your heart comes out into public domain. Now, can you imagine the vitriol or the poison, the slander that Saul is putting into Jonathan and into his royal cabinet, the attendants, whom he is asking to kill somebody they love? He has to justify that request, doesn't he? Well, because they're going to say, you want me to kill King, uh, or you want me to kill David? Why? Well, let me tell you, everybody loves this guy, but let me tell you about him. Things that you don't know about him. You know, he's turning my own son against me. Do you know he's been after the throne for years? Let me tell you what we heard him saying. All of these lies. And uh, he writes about them in the Psalms. But Jonathan loves David, and so he's going to take a costly stand. And so Jonathan has to stand against his dad here. So honoring your father and mother, which is the fifth commandment, ends when we must dishonor our heavenly father. And so Jonathan is not going to go along with what his father asks of him. Jonathan is a friend, and so he takes a stand against the king. Now he's dad, but he's king. Now submitting and obeying to God-given authority, like Romans 13 says, or submitting to church leadership, like Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, 
or submitting even in the home as Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 or Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1 for children to obey parents and there's wives in there. Um, All of that ends when we dishonor or are asked to violate God's word and God's will. You remember in Acts chapter uh, 4, the religious authorities say to the uh, apostles, you must not preach the gospel, and their response is, figure it out for yourselves whether we should obey you or we should obey God. As for us, we cannot help but preach the gospel. And so uh, we see that uh, Jonathan is just going to take a stand for truth. So what a difficult place and what a wretched, torturous place. Self-ambitious dad puts his own son because of all he cares about is himself. So can you imagine the struggle in Jonathan's own heart for the love of Jonathan Stop this madness. For the love of your son or your daughter, mom or dad, lay it down. What a difficult place he put everybody on his staff who loved David. I love what Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15 says. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and lets a a root of bitterness grow up that causes trouble and defiles many. When we let these things like jealousy and envy and bitterness be nurtured in our hearts, not only does it uh, spring up to bite us, but it defiles so many people around us. And that's what's happening to poor Jonathan and the staff. They have to trudge through all of this. And so Jonathan, because he's a loyal friend, in your verses there, he warns David, his friend, you're in danger Someone is spewing hate. Someone has got you in their crosshairs, and that someone is my father. And by the way, by outing the hater, and this in this case it's his father, it's not breaking a confidence, but speaking the truth in love. It's not breaking a confidence. You know, I told you in confidence to kill him. And there you go, spreading that out and going and tell that person, you know, you're breaking a confidence. And that's how people, self-absorbed people, always twist everything around and make it the person who's trying to, to do a good deed and keep somebody out of harm's way as that's the problem. And so, well, thank God for a few loyal friends. He says, let me go to my father and try to fix this. Verses 4 through 10. Jonathan spoke well of David to uh, to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. What has he done? And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. 
Once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him, but an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with the spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his good escape. So number one was a true friend, and number two is going to be a moment of sanity. So we've heard about temporary insanity, but here we have temporary sanity because uh, Jonathan reasons with his father Saul and the fog temporarily lifts and Saul gets it and there's good news. Things are like the good old days. For how long? Two verses, but you know, you can't blame a guy for trying. So uh, blessed are the peacemakers, the Lord Jesus says. On his sermon on the mount, Matthew chapter 5. And by the way, when we go to Israel, we stand on that mount looking at the Sea of Galilee. And we'll look at the text of the Sermon on the Mount on the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just throw that in there. (laughs) Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, why the reward of being called sons of God? The reward of peacemakers is that they are recognized as true children of God. They share God's passion for peace and reconciliation, the breaking down of walls between people. Jonathan's a peacemaker, a child of God. What a beautiful passage for him to stand up like that and reason with his father. And then the beautiful picture of him bringing, escorting David into Saul's presence. Warren Wearsby loves to suddenly, out of nowhere, the commentator, my go-to guy, I love Warren Wearsby, he loves to just pause and then say, are you a peacemaker or are you a troublemaker? (laughs) Always. There's always a line in there where he he just reaches out and brings it home. So verses 4 and 5, Jonathan does more than secretly help his friend David with information. He's going to stand up to his father, and and he goes to bat for his friend. I love what Pastor David Guzik said about this text. He says, you can't measure a person's support by what they say about you to your face. You measure their support by how they back you when you aren't around, when your character is being attacked. Verses 4 and 5, now, Jonathan has a two-pronged argument. Number one, David's innocent, Dad. Listen, David's done nothing wrong to you. He doesn't deserve to die. His second argument in your text, David's a pretty handy guy to have around. He's valuable. He's innocent, and he's valuable, especially with an army of Philistines breathing down our neck. And then he does something really smart. It's the Holy Spirit. He, he reminds him of that whole scene with Goliath. And here's, here's what he's saying. He says, remember when Goliath, that giant, you know, remember that whole scene when, the, the, when David went out there unarmed and looking like a little boy, with no sword, and he just had a slingshot. And that stone took off, and we were all watching in amazement, and it went right into his forehead. 
and we watched, holding our breath in, in amazement and, and unbelief as this redwood tree toppled to the ground. David risking his life, walking out there. Dad, do you remember how happy you were? I'm reading your text. How happy all of us were. Do you remember that? And a faint smile comes slowly on the king's face. And a distinct softening comes slowly upon Saul's countenance as he recounts that unforgettable moment. So Jonathan's all, he sees the smile and he, the softening on his face and he says, seriously, dad, you're going to kill a guy like that? And Saul listens and he responds and he's going to reverse his course with an oath. And I just made up a little thing that he might have said. He said, not going to lie, David doesn't have to die. Cross my heart and pinky swear I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> you like that one? You want me to do it again? I see one person who apparently missed it. Not going to lie, David doesn't have to die. Cross my heart and pinky swear I'm not even going there. I like that. Unfortunately, Saul's a liar and his oaths are meaningless. But David at least can return to the courts for uh, two verses. Now, verse 7, beautiful. I've already alluded to it. You know, bringing this guy back uh, into his father's presence, just a wonderful picture of uh, true Christian Christianity and the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of all Christians. And Verse 8, unfortunately, the Philistines attack again, and David goes out with his men and gave them a sound spanking that they deserved, and David's success triggers another of Saul's episodes. A great quote here, natural men can be reasoned with, but in order for for soul transformation to take place, we must have union with the Holy Spirit and relationship with God. So empty-hearted King Saul can say the right words. He can see, man, I'm blown. it. What am I doing? I'm trying to kill this guy. He's a hero. He, get, he can get it momentarily. And he knows the right words to say. And he can take an oath in God's name. But when the temptation comes again, he lacks the power to do anything about it because he's got an empty heart. A self-reformation, it's a dangerous thing without filling your life with the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus talked about this in Matthew 12. He said, when evil is cast out of a life and the heart is not filled with the Spirit of God, it's only a matter of time before the old ways come back, but they come back with a sevenfold vengeance. The last state of a self-reformed Holy Spirit lacking person is wor worse than before. And so in verse 9, the old scab of jealous insecurity gets picked because everybody's singing David's praises again. And ouch, here we go. They're singing his praises. He just won the battle again. And then he goes into his evil thing, and he's sitting there tempted, and of course he has spear in hand, and David's playing. David's on the harp, and Saul's on the harpoon. <laughs> and the spear misses David's head, 
and is driven into the wall next to him. Verse 10, David makes his good escape. You know he's going to start a 10-year exile now. He's the rightful king, and he knows it in his heart. And I want you to see that, that he knows who he is, and he knows what God has given him in the dream. He knows whose rightful place is on that throne is his. And yet watch his character. It's an amazing thing. Little, little problem with some white out there. (laughs) All right, verses 11 through 17. Time to leave the palace. Now, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. Yeah, so much for the oath in God's name. But me... Michal, and that's the way we pronounce that name. Everybody calls her Michael. I told you that, but we're going to call her by her real Hebrew name, Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michal took an idol, laid it on the bed, covered it with a garment, and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he's ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. Saul said to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy Away so that he escaped, and Michal told him, He said to me, Let me get away, why should I kill you? So we have one was a true friend, Roman numeral number two, a moment of sanity, and now number three, a fugitive from injustice. Now, even though David is the true king, and the palace is his place where he truly belongs, he retreats. So look at David's character <clears throat> it's his palace to live in. It's really his throne to reign from. It's really his army to command. It's really his bed to sleep in. It's really his food to eat. Instead, he's going to live on the run, starving to death, hiding in caves, drinking out of mud puddles, going hungry and thirsty, friendless and lonely. Now, no doubt this guy's angry. He's hurt. He's upset. He's disappointed. He's lonely. He's thinking, God, where are you? He's writing psalms. He's singing. How unfair is this? But read the psalms, and you're going to find the answer to all of your problems and all of my problems. He pours out his heart to God. He trusts the Lord. He puts his fate in God's hands, and he moves on. He pours out his heart to God. He trusts in the Lord. He puts his fate in God's hands, And he moves on. This is his secret. Uh, David will do anything rather than force his way to the top. He'll do anything rather than lift his hand against who he calls the Lord's anointed. And in chapter 24 and verse 6, he calls him his master. I will not lift a finger to harm the Lord's anointed and David's men are, are you are we talking about the same guy? The guy who's been trying to kill you for about 14 chapters? That guy? Yeah, I won't lift a finger 
because God put him on the throne, and as far as I know, he wants him on the throne. It's not going to be me who's going to remove him. God is big enough to remove him on his own, and if he wants me king, he'll make me king. That's the way he rolls. That's why we love King David, and we need to learn from him. You know, sometimes it's okay to run. Sometimes we're called to face and fight, bold as a lion. But sometimes the Holy Spirit says, you know, you need to flee. You know, just because he, David has, a, listen, a non-retaliatory spirit about him, doesn't mean he's a doormat and he just lays down and says, go ahead and throw your spirit at me. You know, so it's, it's okay to escape. Acts chapter 9, Paul is let down by the other disciples out of a window, kind of reminiscent of this story in a basket, fleeing for his life. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, they got so mad at him because he said, you know what, in church service, he says in Luke chapter 4, there's a reading from Isaiah, and he says, just so you all know, that reading was about me, I'm the Messiah. They get so mad at him, they, they, they try to throw him off the brow of a cliff, and it says that Jesus just walked through them and went on his way, kind of escaped away. It wasn't his time. It's okay. It's okay to withdraw and disengage. You're not a coward. You're following the the leading of the Holy Spirit if that's what God has put on your heart. So uh, David goes home there in verse 11, maybe to say goodbye to me, call. Uh, Saul figures that David would probably go home, so he dispatches soldiers to watch the house and to kill him. And what I love is, is, is that's the preface to the Psalm 59, that while he's being surrounded by Saul's spies in the middle of the night, he knows his life is on the line, and he's, he's just singing to himself. He's composing. He probably doesn't have time to write it all. I think he writes it a little bit later, as we're going to see in the text. But he's humming and he's meditating and he's singing, God, I know you're my defense and my shield. And he's doing this thing in the spirit instead of all the other ways. He could be freaking out and doing the things we all do when we're surrounded and overwhelmed. So Michal either knows her father all too well or is privy to some information. She says, get out tonight or you're a dead man by morning. So verse 12, um, uh, it's one of these out-of-the-window tricks. So they pull a MacGyver, and she helps lower him down to the ground, and he escapes. Now, Mikal starts scheming in verse 13. I like this. She's trying to buy her husband time. And so far, you know what? She's not proving to be a snare, but she's proving to be a pretty good wife who loves her husband. And so uh, she makes a dummy out of a, apparently a bust of one of her spare idols, which does tell you something about her, unfortunately. And she glues kind of a makeshift toupee of goat hair onto the idol's head and then throws a comforter over the makeshift shoulder. And and it actually works because in verse 14, the next morning, Saul's men uh, come in the foyer there and and are asking about David. And Michal says, oh, David, look over there. Man, he's as sick as a goat. I mean, dog, <laughs> a dog, dog. I mean, sick as a dog. Uh, soldiers return <laughs> empty-handed. And Saul, though, 
they say, hey, boss, you know, he's got the man flu. He's in bed. We kind of saw him all, you know. It was ugly. We just saw a little tuft of hair. I mean, it was, wow. And, and so Saul says, you know what, guys? Bring the whole bed, four of you. Pick up each corner and bring the whole bed with his nasty little tuft of hair to me because I'm going to kill him. So the soldiers return back to Michal and imagine their surprise when they pull back the covers, a little statue of Buddha with a wig. <laughs> They're not happy. Like, what's this? And so they go back and say, uh, this is what we found. And guess who put it there? Your daughter. Okay, verse 17 to the end. Last reading. Saul says to Michal, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Michal, Michal told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth, is the way you pronounce that, and stayed there. Word came to Saul. David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Sekiu, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his robes and also prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay that way all night, all day and all night. This is why people say they've revived that proverb from a couple chapters ago. Is Saul also among the prophets? So Roman numeral number one was a true friend. Number two, a moment of sanity. Number three, a fugitive from injustice. And now finally, number four, a humbling experience. Twice in the New Testament, for emphasis, the Holy Spirit uh, writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we won't humble ourselves, sometimes God will do it for us. Amen? Amen. All right. Saul calls me call in, in verse 17. Why did you deceive me? And here we go again with a self-centered person. Why did you the problem of this whole chapter is you. Why did you deceive me and let my enemy? What a terrible, pathetic view of life is to see somebody who he's threatened by as his enemy and David is far from his enemy. Why did you let him get away? Now you've ruined everything. Now I like Mikal because she's got her priorities straight. It's not her family of origin that has priority anymore because Genesis chapter 2 tells us that a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and she to him. Her first priority is not to daddy, 
even if he is king, it's to her husband. And uh, we see that right there. And so, like father, the daughter is quick on her feet with uh, making up stuff. So, Mikal says, not going to lie, my life was threatened. Okay. (laughs) David said, help me escape or I'll kill you. All right. So, David had time to get away to a safe place. And a safe person, who do you run to? He knows who to run to the high priest, the old godly man, the hero of of the Old Testament. Samuel's a a, a hero. And he goes and he he pours out his heart. And and Neyoth is always associated with Rama. And Rama's the place where Samuel uh, kind of instituted a seminary. It's called the School of Prophets there. So you just picture a little uh, Marietta Hot Springs where Calvary Chapel... Bible colleges and through the gates, just beautiful with the hot springs and everybody's just learning to love the Lord and be used by him. And so, and so really he's in this place to pray and to seek God and he pours out his heart and, and, and their counseling and their worship. In fact, commentators say this is where Psalm 59 got finished in the time there at the seminary on the grounds with the prophets and all of the worship going on. Psalm 59 just gives away some key things when you're going through some things like this. Verse 1, he cries out to God for help. Defend me, O Lord. Verses 3 and 4, he says, you know I'm innocent. I didn't do anything here uh, this time. Uh, Verse 6 and 7, look at the hurtful things that they're saying about me and doing. Verse 10, I trust you, God. Verses 16 and 17, faith. This is going to turn out well because you're always faithful. These are some of his thoughts during this terrible, tragic time when a lot of people would be doubting, is there a God in heaven? Look at my life. It's not turning out the way I expected or according to the promises of his word. Where is the promises? But no, look at how he handles life. This is why he's one of the greatest men. I would say he's the greatest man of the Old Testament. Why? His faith, his faith is crazy. His love is even crazier for God. He sees everything in terms of how God is using his life and how much God is going to come through for him. No doubting or sulking or angry or going to pieces. He's writing worship songs and singing to the Lord. Now in Nayoth, With the high priest Samuel, something amazing happened. So uh, verse 19 of your text says that word gets back to Saul. Uh, David's up with Samuel and Naoth. So there's always haters and word always gets back. So Saul has spies out there, I guess. Verse 20, Saul sends a detachment of soldiers to apprehend David. So they enter the campus, all right? And they're like, hey, we're here for... And then they start... The word prophesying in the Hebrew right there can mean to foretell future events, but it most likely here means just to declare praise unto God. So just to give God glory and and to start praising God. That's what commentators say they started doing. So they're coming here. Hey, we're here for David. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. He is our refuge and strength and so on. So I guess Saul gets word. 
you know, they, they, they turn into to some worship fanatics there, you know. They got swayed in by the Spirit. We'll send another group. So the second group goes. Same thing happens. Then he says, send another group. You know, he doesn't get the message. God has, this is the hundredth time the Holy Spirit has said, your plans are failing. You're trying to thwart God's plan. God is opposing you, man. Can't you see? Everything you try, dead end. Give it up. No, send another. Send another. Send another. If he would have gone four, five, and six, it would have happened four, five, and six. And still, and then he says, okay, well, then I'm going myself. And this is the fun part. He hitches up his donkey. He says, I'll take care of this. And so he goes in there, and the Lord causes him to be humbled. And he strips off his robes. And now there's a debate among scholars because it does, it can mean all the robes. And so the commentators say this, it is unlikely, though possible, that Saul stripped himself there. The Hebrew word for naked can mean that, which it is, the Hebrew word for naked. NIV just takes it to mean he stripped off his royal robes to say, I'm no longer king, and I will praise God. The Holy Spirit saying, this is how it should be, man. Step down. This is how it can be. If you will take off the royal robe, like I've asked you to for 14 chapters now, or however many it's been, and you can prophesy and say beautiful things about God, and our relationship would be restored but probably not. The Hebrew word for naked can mean that a person has just stripped themselves down to their undergarments. Probably Saul took off all his royal robes and that set his prestige and his royalty and laid himself out before the Lord in plain linen undergarments. It was a way for the Lord to say, you really aren't king anymore, Saul. I've stripped you of your royal glory. Now, nice opportunity for him to repent, to get up after that night. He lay there the whole night. To get up in the morning, to have breakfast with the guys, the prophets. He's got Samuel there, old man Samuel, a longtime friend of his before. And to come clean with Samuel there, the guys are there, David's there. Hey, I'm done. I'm just, I'm done. God gave him the grace to stop and to pause and he doesn't follow through. It's following through that is his biggest problem. And so it says the proverb is revived from the early days uh, when the Holy Spirit filled his mouth at the, in the early days. You remember that in, in chapter 10, eight chapters ago. And is Saul one of the prophets? It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but here's how they use this proverb. So let's say two Jews are talking about something that seems like it could never happen in a thousand years, but needs to happen. And one of them would say, like that's ever going to happen. And then the other one in this proverb would say, Saul, a prophet? Seriously? That meant... Anything could happen. And so it was a proverb because it was so miraculous that Paul, uh, Saul rather, would be speaking um, good things about God, which says a lot about how his usual life was. So speaking of Proverbs, as we wrap up here, Proverbs 29 and verse 1, 
A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. A person who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Unfortunately, this will be true of Saul. And, and nobody in their right mind, after reading all of these verses and getting to chapter 31, at that terrible ending, will ever point a finger at God and say, man, you were really harsh. Every other verse is like, Saul, come on. The Lord is being so kind to you to gift you with an opportunity to repent, and he just doesn't. So this will be their last encounter, Saul and Samuel, until a seance from uh, that the Lord will honor a witch of fortune teller's request to bring Samuel up from paradise or Hades, and and he will appear and he will rebuke. King Saul again from the grave and tell him about the chapter that's waiting for him. That's in chapter 30, but 31, Saul will end it all in just a pathetic way. Now, what about Saul prophesying? People say, oh, well, look, the Holy Spirit was in his heart. And well, you know what? Balaam's donkey spoke too, and I don't know about his salvation. I mean, Judas could preach sermons and heal people. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. He sent them out and they all preached and they all healed. So Warren Wiersbe, I love him. Special manifestations are not evidences a person's saved. Matthew 7 21 through 23. Didn't we do this? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do healings? Didn't we do that? Yeah, yeah, I didn't know you. A life-changing experience with God is what saves us. A changed heart, the Holy Spirit being born again. All of that. So while Saul's occupied at at the seminary, David slips away and the game is going to go on. Now, the chapter ends with Saul's plan completely frustrated. Uh, When David first came to Samuel, he probably thought he was really uh, vulnerable. So can you picture David going to Samuel there at at Ramah and saying, Saul's after me, man. I need a sword. You guys got a sword around the seminary. I need protection. I need soldiers. I, I need a guard. Maybe the old prophet may have said to David, hey, What you really need to do is worship the Lord right now. And this is what I found. Through all of the remaining chapters, this guy's worshiping the Lord through his troubles. He's hiding himself in God. He's wrapping himself in praise. And he's worshiping his way through life. I promise you that the answer to all of your problems tonight is to worship your way through it. Worship your way through it. Honor God in it. Find out what God is teaching you in it. Surrender to it. Know that God is working for good in it. Keep your attitude right. Sing through it. Pray about it through it. Lift it before God. And I'm telling you, You'll be as blessed as King David. Worship your way 
through your life, and you will be blessed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we find here in chapter 19. Would you help us to put it into practice? It's so hard, it's so challenging. Father, to just we want to give way to all our feelings instead of pouring out our feelings to you and believing past our feelings and what we can see with eyes of faith to the things unseen which are eternal. For the things that we can see are temporary, the things unseen, permanent and eternal. So fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and help us in all our circumstances to worship the Lord and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.